The following message is from the 2017 IBCD Institute, Addictions, Grace for the Journey. Good morning. Uh, you know, I feel great up here, and, and I think I feel better than some of you look right now. That's because where I come from, it's noon. That's right, and it's only nine o'clock here for some of you. Well, it's good to be here. I, um, uh, I, was, I woke up probably about five o'clock this morning, your time, which is eight o'clock my time. I, you know, it's really hard for me to stay in bed much past that. And uh, I went out on the internet on my cell phone. Um, and I found an article that I think you're going to be interested in. Uh, I commend to you ScienceDaily.com. You should write that down. And you should go sign up for their daily um, email feed. And what they will send you, this is ScienceDaily.com, is what they'll send you is 50 articles, which some are summations, page and page and a half summation of a current scientific uh, research publication, an article that has been published. And in that 50, you'll find articles about everything, including ADHD, depression, uh, worry, uh, any number of things. Well, this morning's article that I found had to do with a lecture that my friend Elise Fitzpatrick gave yesterday. I think she's back there something. Yes, right over there, right. And, and at which time she took away all the people in the room's cell phones and, and watched them become sweaty-palmed anxious over it. Yes. Well, this article talks about what happens when you try to put your cell phone down. You know, it's real research about it. And what they found out was that if you turn your cell phone off and put it on your desk, that uh, it being there still requires a part of your brain to restrain yourself from picking it up and reduces your efficiency. So I just thought you'd like to know that. Information that you might or might not be able to use. Anyways, science, sciencedaily.com. I mean, you know, when I think of talking about people who struggle with addiction, I, you know, the first verse that comes to mind for me is 2 Corinthians 5.17. It's, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things pass away. New things are coming. I, I don't generally get up and say uh, unkind things about Alcoholics Anonymous in public, and the reason is, is I have several cousins who are alumni, and for all their faults, they did at least help my, help my relatives. But one thing I do object that they do, and that is that every meeting that you come to, you have to get up and you have to say, hi, I'm Charlie, I'm, I'm an addict of some sort. Of course, what does the Bible tell us about that? It tells us Paul to the Corinthians gave a whole list of really wicked things that we've all done, at least not everything on the list, but a good bit of them. And it says, and such were some of you. Not such are some of you. Such were some of you. And that gives people who struggle with addiction hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I come before you now and I ask, Lord, that you'd speak through me because I know I can't do this without your doing that. God, I thank you that we have in Scripture solutions to problems which people face on a day-in and day-out basis. God, I pray that you give us wisdom as we look for them today, and I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I understand addiction, sort of. I, I used to drink two cups of Starbucks every morning, and, and then I, throughout the day I drank a six-pack of Coke Zero. That gave me a really good jolt, about 400 to 500 milligrams of caffeine, and I lived that way for 40 years with no discernible difficulty to me. 
Now, I don't know what my wife thought of it. I, I do know that on sometimes I'd throw in a couple Advil cold and sinus with some Sudafed in it, and I was pressing the limits of her patience. She would say that it simply turned me into a jerk. I suppose I could, I could blame my mother for all of that. Freud would be happy. I, 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 <laughs> good, you are awake. I, <laughs> Because you sort of missed the first joke, you know. <laughs> anyway, the uh, they're subtle. I'm sorry. If I was any good at telling jokes, I'd I'd, I'd be on television or something. But I'm not. I anyway. Back to my mother. I, I can remember watching her feed my baby sister Coca-Cola out of a spoon in her infancy. Yes, I I I remember when it took a real man to open a Pepsi bottle. Yes, and I wasn't. I, I and and I I would take that. 16-ounce Pepsi bottle and put it between my knees, which really did wake you up. And then I would take that bottle opener and I'd pop that lid off and, and I'd drink it for breakfast. Anyway, uh, yes, my addiction started young. Caffeine is a stimulant and it is habit-forming. I would say it's addicting because it comes to control when you take it. When your caffeine level drops, what happens to you? You get a little fidgety, maybe your head hurts, and you run down to the kitchen hoping that you remembered to turn the auto, auto brew on your coffee pot on before you went to bed the night before. Yes, I gave up caffeine in all its wonderful forms. It's really ugly. <sighs> because I, I started having these episodes of rapid, irregular heartbeat. My first came when I was speaking at a conference just like this in Lafayette, Indiana in February. They, they, they had a nice green room, and in it they had all these kinds of little aluminum-looking cans from Starbucks, tall sort of, and I kind of got to liking them and drank some coffee, drank a couple of those, and went in to speak, and all of a sudden I noticed my heart was just doing really weird things while I was standing up there talking, and I kind of tapped myself on the chest a couple times, didn't go away, went on for four hours. I, uh, so I quit. I, and I, well, I, I actually, I've quit several times. <laughs> uh, and each time I have that wonderful headache and restlessness that I know that if I just went downstairs and drank a cup of coffee or a Diet Dr. Pepper, it would fix it. I found out that I couldn't even drink decaf, decaf because it contains about 20 milligrams of caffeine, and what happens when you drink decaf is just you drink more cups, you know, to get up to your dose level. <laughs> when the price of my addiction got high enough, I quit. And the reason why it got high enough was because I run. I've been running for 48 years now, longer than most of you have been alive. And I found that if I drank caffeine and ran, that it would cause that irregular heartbeat. And so the price just got too high to continue. I do miss it. I really do. I, and if I could, I'd walk right through that back door there and straight to Starbucks and get me a Vente Cafe Mocha and make up all those times that I've been missing. <laughs> I miss it because I thought it just gave me an edge. I, I, I miss it because on long nights at the hospital it helped me stay awake. I, I miss it because I thought it, it made me think faster. I don't have to go to meetings. I, uh, I, although I went online to see, and there are 12-step programs that exist for people who struggle with caffeine, I, I've been free of it now for about six months, but I'd go back to drinking it right now. But I don't want to have to have a heart cath where they go in and, you know, map, electronically map your left atrium to find that spot that gets fired off by your substance of abuse of choice. It's a nice story. It illustrates a lot of points about addiction that are important. 
Now, what are the definitions that we need to know about addiction? All right. That was the introduction. I got to get caught up here. Yes. And the other problem is, is that the uh, notes that I usually do most of my speaking off of are 150 feet away from me right now. <laughs> anyway, I, I think I can make it work. Um, addiction, it, it, you know, the definition of it depends on whom you're talking to. Um, in the DSM-5, it doesn't exist anymore. It, it has subsequently become substance abuse disorder, as I read. The, uh, I like that, I like that uh, and I can read it back here. Um, very simply, an addict is someone whose life is controlled by drugs. That's probably the simplest definition that there is. And there are a lot of criteria to meet in the DSM that I think are worthy of our attention for just a moment. The first is impaired control. Yeah, that's right, impaired control. The joke is actually kind of funny. I said to recite the alphabet from memory, you may not Google it. <laughs> I just read it because I didn't know if you could read it or not. The, the, so the first criteria is that the individual takes the substance in larger amounts and for longer than they should. Uh, for the cigarette smoker, you start with a, one, you know, a few cigarettes and pretty soon you're smoking a pack and then it's two packs. Uh, similar problems occur with caffeine. My wife will testify to the fact that if I, I swore that I would only drink one diet Dr. Pepper a day, that it wouldn't be six weeks before I was back to a six-pack and a, and, and, and a cup of, or two of Starbucks a day. That's just the way it's, just the way it works. It works that way with the opiates, with the opioids. You, you know, you start out by saying, well, I'll take one or two type Vicodin whenever my, my knee hurts or whatever, and then pretty soon you're taking uh, two every six hours, and then it's four every six hours, until, you're, until the Tylenol cause your, causes your liver to, to struggle or you get snagged by law enforcement because you're buying it on the street corner or if your employer finds out when you fail the whiz quiz. That's what my brother calls it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. The urine drug screen. Ah. Those who struggle with addiction often express the desire to quit or reduce, but they fail on multiple occasions. Trust me, I know how that works. I, I think that, that most drug users whose lives are being destroyed by the drug that they are using think about quitting at times, but, but it's the euphoria or the withdrawal that makes it so very hard to part with. The addict will spend a great deal of time Obtaining, using, or recovering from using, whatever their uh, substance of abuse is, uh, they, they may use all of their time in order to get it. I've watched people do this. My cousin Jimmy did it. His whole life revolved around the habits associated with finding and obtaining um, the Vicodin that he took or convincing the doctor to prescribe it or convincing the doctors to prescribe it because one doctor wouldn't write for that much. Then there's the cravings. The, uh, the, yes, nope, I gotta back up. Yeah, yeah, then there's the craving. Uh, the intense desire or urge to get the, the drug. It can be driven by being in the place where it's been used or with friends. This is the, the, the idea that and the, the, the drunk who tells you that he's gonna go to the bar and drink a Coke with his friends, you know, and you know what's gonna happen. He's gonna be drug out feet first before the evening's over. Or it's the, the old adage, you know, you know, my cigarette and cup of coffee in the morning. You know, the, the, the things that you put together that go along with the addiction. Uh, it can cause the individual to steal a loved one's medicine. It turns otherwise reasonably good men and women into abject liars. I've, I've watched addicts steal things from loved ones and friends and relatives and then sell them for drugs. It results in social, social impairment. 
these individuals fail in, in duties at school, work, and home because of the effect of their substance. It causes all kinds of havoc in their homes. They, they fail in school. They cannot keep jobs. Right now in the United States, we, we have jobs that go unfilled, good jobs that go unfilled. And one example is driving a truck. Driving a truck, you know, I, I've often wondered if that might not be fun in a way, drive all the way across the country and stuff until I see the semis like this far apart from each other and really driving all the way across the country means you're looking at the back end of another semi all day for a, for a really long time. But it's not a terrible job and they pay well. They pay fifty to $70,000 a year to put somebody in that truck to drive it and they can't find enough people to do it and there is one reason why they can't find enough people to do it because they can't can't find enough people who can pass the urine drug screen. That is really what the issue is. Colorado may say it's okay for you to smoke marijuana recreationally, but Walmart won't let you drive a truck, and neither will the federal government if you do. So it messes up their lives in that way. It continues, they continue to use despite the social and personal problems that, the, that it caused. You know, they keep right on taking, even, the, even though it's causing them great harm, and, 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 and it disrupts everything in their life socially, recreationally, and work activities, all things given up in order to pursue the worship of their substance. And, and then you will see that they will do risky use. Risky use. You use substance in a physically hazardous way. You know, you're, it used to be, you know, used to be the, the guy, that comedian who said, you know you're a redneck if, you know. Well, it's you know you're an addict if you are grinding up your opana to inhale it or you're injecting it with someone else's dirty needle or when you're taking 16 Vicodin a day and desperately looking more for more in spite of your liver or you continue to drink in, in spite of the fact that the doctor told you that your liver enzymes are five times what they ought to be and you're developing cirrhosis. Uh, so driven to risky use, and, and they continue to use it despite knowing that the physical and psychological damage that it's doing. They are willing to continue doing it, knowing that all these things could be happening to them. As some of them would say, you got to die of something. Yeah, that, that'll be the response. And it's the response of people who smoke cigarettes that I talk to in the office. Well, I'm going to die of something. Then there are the pharmacologic criteria, uh, and those two are you develop tolerance and then you have withdrawal. Tolerance is when you need more and more of it to get the same effect. Withdrawal it means that if you stop it abruptly, you have bad symptoms. Uh, so withdrawal, uh, sometimes the effects are spectacularly bad. If you're a regular Xanax or Clonopin user, or if you're drinking a pint a day uh, and you stop suddenly, you can have seizures. Um, or delirium tremens when you stop large amounts of alcohol. My son had a friend who ended up in, a, in a going to rehab, and when, when my son arranged for him to go into uh, a, a very well-known and, and a, a good uh, drug treatment facility, the one thing they told him was, well, don't let him stop now. You know, and, until you get him here, you make sure he continues to drink, because if he quit, he, he, he would have delirium tremens, he would have fever, seizures, perhaps even, perhaps even die. So the withdrawal effects are, 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 are potent. Keep in mind, though, that uh, the presence of tolerance and withdrawal doesn't, uh, according to the DSM, doesn't make an addict. They, and they also say that dependence is not addiction. And my response to that, well, dependence isn't addiction until it is. You know, and, 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 and you know, that's, that's the whole trouble with it. So my caffeine problem wouldn't qualify. 
because I didn't meet all those criteria, did it? I, I, and despite the fact that I'd like to go to Starbucks right now, uh, it, 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 despite the fact that I developed tolerance to the drug and would have withdrawal symptoms from it, I would be said to have a substance-induced disorder as opposed to a substance abuse disorder or addiction. Why isn't it an addiction? Well, well and for the most part, it's because I could quit. You know, that's the first thing. You know, the, the drug didn't exactly control me, although it did. I, I didn't quit working over it. I didn't quit playing golf. I uh, didn't quit going to church. While I did look for a Starbucks every morning, wherever I was, I didn't spend all hours of the day. Uh, and I wasn't selling my stuff in order to get money to go, although, you know, at the rate, $4 a cup or something like that. And that's what they used to say. It's not Starbucks, it's four bucks or something like that. <sighs> So what I had would fall into the substance-induced dis- disorder category. Now, this argument continues to extend right on to opioids, which is where the trouble starts. And by definition, the individual who takes Paxil, an antidepressant, would not be considered to be an addict, even though Paxil develops, uh, demonstrates tolerance and withdrawal symptoms. Withdrawal symptoms, which are really fairly significant. Um, and you know, they say the same thing about opioids, and that is where we have gotten into the trouble that we are in today. There's a great argument going on in the public arena today because of the number of people who are dying every year uh, from uh, opioid, opiate and opioid overdoses, generally in combination with uh, the anti-anxiety drugs as well, or muscle relaxers. We're going to have 60,000 people die this year from, uh, from opioid deaths, and I can tell you that the majority of them started on their way to being addicts in a doctor's office with a physician's prescription. That is just the truth of the matter. I've spent my whole career, the last 42 years, being the most parsimonious writer of narcotics in the state of Indiana, so much so that during the 1990s, I came under considerable criticism for it. You know, and the reason why I came under considerable criticism was a movement that started in the 1990s, and it was called Pain is the Fifth Vital Sign. It was an abs- it's been an absolute disaster. Uh, it was paid for and promoted by the company that manufactured OxyContin. Yeah, that's right. Those are the people who paid for it. They were the ones who educated the nurses and educated the physicians and the hospital administrators. Physicians, nurses in hospitals and emergency rooms were told that if the patient's pain number and their happy face wasn't zero, that we weren't doing our job. And, and as a result, because you know, when you couple that with physicians being employed and hospitals and medical groups doing patient satisfaction certifies all the time, pretty soon everybody was getting pretty much whatever they wanted with, with regard to, to narcotic pain medicines. And we were well on our way to the 60,000 who will die this year from opioid overdoses. All right. Treacherous. So what would I tell people from a biblical viewpoint about addiction or about substances and substance abuse? Because it's, it's a really pressing topic these days. I, you know, it's like particularly with marijuana. I'll get around to it in a moment. I, I, I can rant about marijuana all day. <sighs> yes. But what does the Bible say? Let's look at Ephesians chapter 5, starting at verse 15. And there it says, Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. And this is very, a very important wisdom issue, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk. 
Do not get drunk. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to God, even the Father. So what's the first thing I'd want to tell you from Scripture about addiction? Well, um, intoxication of any kind is sin, period. Anybody awake out there? (laughs) Anybody might want to say amen? Yes, yeah, because it is. Now, that's hopeful. Yeah, it is. That's hopeful. Um, And it's very helpful when you're thinking about using any substance. The good news is if it is a sin, it can be repented of. Isn't that true? Yes, it is. If it's a sin, you can repent of it. If it's a disease, then you're stuck in the medical treatment delivery system in the United States, which handles substance abuse very poorly. It's not that they aren't trying to get their acting gear today, because they are. You know, there's a significant major challenge out there right now, but it deals with it poorly. So, the first command of believers is... Don't get drunk. Don't be intoxicated. And it doesn't make any difference which substance you choose to use. Don't be intoxicated. Then, the next thing, uh, the next issue is who's going to run your life? Yeah. What is going to run your life? Be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't be drunk. That's, that's the, the illusion there is, is when you're filled up with alcohol, you, you, act, you are in some measure changed by it all. And it, did, it, conduct, it, it, it determines how you conduct your behavior, sometimes in rather bad ways. Instead, we are supposed to be filled by the Holy Spirit, and He is supposed to be controlling us. Dependence in most circumstances substitutes the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer and places it in a substance. Loss of control when you use a substance is one of the agreed-upon criteria for addiction. So the main issue, again, becomes who's going to run your life? Will it be the substance? Will it be my Starbucks? Will it be your cigarettes? Or will it be your marijuana? Will it be your alcohol? Or will it be the Lord? Which? Then, the next big issue is who are you going to worship? Yes, who will you worship? And there's a little errata up there. It's actually Galatians 5, 20 through 21, not Ephesians 5, 20 through 21. And let's look at it. What does it say? Um, Paul says in verse 16 of Galatians 5, but I say, walk in the Spirit, walk by the Spirit, and you'll not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may, you, you may not do the things that you please. But if you're led by the spirit, you're not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness. All of those things together. Ah, so, what can I say about, about substance abuse? Well, it comes down to worship. It is idolatry. Uh, as I've often said, most people drink because they don't like the way the world looks until they've had a six-pack. You know, they like it better after they drink it. Uh, it is, um, and, and the next word, idolatry, comes as sorcery, which is, act- in Greek, is pharmakeia. Which, yeah, I, some, some eyes kind of opened up right then. Uh, pharma, pharmakeia is familiar in English. It, it's pharmacy, our, our pharmacology, our 
are pharmaceuticals. Actually, what they are talking about here when they're talking about sorcery is the use of drugs in religious uh, ceremonies. Uh, one of the most notable was the Oracle at Delphi. Anybody here remember the Oracle at Delphi? Yes, it's <laughs> a couple of history majors. That was my undergraduate degree, it was, it was a BA in history. How did I get into medical school? Anyway, the, uh, um, there, the Oracle at Delphi was a crack in the ground, and uh, there, would, uh, the, uh, they would, there would be ladies who would sit close to the crack, and they would inhale the gas that came out of the ground, and then they would babble. And then there would be an, another individual there who for a fee would tell you what the babbling meant. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, very, it's very religious. Anyway, the, uh, the, uh, and, and the whole idea was, was to get an idea about the future or about how things were really going at the time, to get information that you couldn't have and to get it through the use of drugs. Ah, oh, you know, it just sounds like what people do today. I don't like life the way it is, and so I'll snort some cocaine and I like it better. I just like the way it looks better at that point. We see that word again in Revelation 9, 21, and it's speaking of the end times. You know, and I, you know, I don't know what you think about the theology of the end times, but boy, it looks like things are getting closer all the time, at least from my viewpoint. And, and what is it, in the last times it says that, that individuals, even though they, they, they know what God is doing on the earth, it says that they did not repent of their murders nor of their sorceries. And again, that word is pharmakeia. Right up to the end, you know, people are going to be committed to, to their drug use. So the question is, is what are you going to worship? Then, right then the, the good news is, is that you get a choice. We do have a choice in the matter. Paul in Galatians 5, he gives us those two big lists, the fruits of the flesh and the fruits of the spirit. And, and then in Galatians 6, he tells us that whatever a man sows, he reaps. And as one preacher said, more than you sow, later than you sow. We get to choose. And, and then Peter will tell us that the choice grows on us. When you get to, uh, to 2 Peter 2, 14 through 16, 14, Peter says, concerning people today, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed. And that's what it's about. You know, my, I, I train my heart, I train my heart to be a substance abuser, or I can choose to do differently. Now, the last bit of information, there's a cell phone out there, isn't there? Yes, I can hear it ringing, right? I always, at, at, at that point, in, at, at times like this, I always point out that Shakespeare once said that uh, all the world is a stage, and today I, I say that it's all the world is a phone booth. <laughs> That's right. All the world is a phone booth. So, what is hopeful in the scriptures? It, it's, it, it is that, um, that it's God's grace. Yes, that the, the hope for the addict, hope for all of us, comes from grace and salvation and mercy and repentance. And, and, and that as a believer, we're not on our own in this endeavor. As, as Paul would tell us in Philippians 2, 12 and 13, that it is God that we are to work out our salvation in fear and trembling, but it is God who works in us both to will and to do His good pleasure. Now, I promised you I was going to tell you how these drugs work in in your brain or in the human brain. 
And these things can be kind of technical, so I'm going to try to explain it in terms that I can understand. And I think, if, <laughs> and if I can understand it, I think you can. Uh, the portion of our brains that deal uh, with this issue are, is the reward pleasure center, and it runs right down the middle of your brain. It's called the mesolimbic dopamine system. Don't be intimidated by big words here. We're, we're going to keep it simple. It, uh, it, and, and it is the area in our brains that the substances that we naturally make operate on um, and for which our, our, our pleasure and our rewards are recognized by our brains. There are seven important sites that do this that are also affected by drugs. The first is the dopamine sites. These are terms that you might have heard. Uh, at this site, cocaine and amphetamine and alcohol also work. There are the serotonin sites where LSD and alcohol also work. There are the endorphin sites. Those are the ones that are near and dear to my heart. Uh, something about running and endorphins. Um, th- these are where the opioids and the alcohol and alcohol work. There are the GABA sites, the uh, where uh, benzodiazepines such as Xanax and clonopin and Valium. Uh, work along with alcohol. There are the glutamate sites where alcohol works. Now you're beginning to get some sort of notion about why alcohol is the number one drug of abuse in the United States today. Uh, Acetylcholine sites where nicotine, yes, nicotine, really a potent addiction, uh, and alcohol works. (laughs) And and then there are the endocannabinoid sites, which is where the marijuana and alcohol work. Notice a couple of things. One, that there is no reward site for water. (laughs) What can I say? (laughs) So you just go right ahead and drink those eight glasses if you want to. Anyway, then... (laughs) Then, uh, notice also that all these sites are naturally stimulated uh, by substances which your body makes. Now, the, the one that I said near, dear to my heart are the endorphins. And it's been long known that people who run, people who run or do other forms, forms of vigorous physical exercise seem to just feel better about life after they get done doing it. And so it is for me. I, I had to stop running four months ago. I, I, I'm back to running again. I, I, I bought this thing called a Zero Runner that looks like... Um, um, uh, it's like an elliptical trainer, except it has joints in the knees, so you get a, 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 uh, a an actual running gait. And it, it comes close. My son, when he watched me on it, said I look like Tom Cruise in the, in the what is it, the day after or something? Yeah, that's right, where they're in those uh, machines that they run around in. Um, but I, I, was, I was able to, I was able to start running again at least every other day. I can run outside, and then I do the easy runner, and I run, ran five miles yesterday. I didn't run this morning because I had to talk to you all, but <laughs> I was going to use all my energy to do that. The, um, but when my son, when, when, I, when the ortho guy told me that my running days were over, you know, I paid a lot of attention to that, I guess. Uh, doctors do make the worst patients. Uh, nurses come second. The, um, <laughs> but when my son heard that I thought I would never run again, he said that it would be harder, it would be easier for you to quit caffeine than it will be to stop running. And he was right, entirely right. I'm, I'm plotting to continue. You know, I'm thinking about getting stem cells injected, ethically derived stem cells from... <laughs> <laughs> from my own bone marrow, injected into my knee because it will grow cartilage. You know, I think eventually that will come to replace knee replacements, but I digress. 
All of these sites are located at the base of the brain and are involved in some aspect of feeling good. Now, moving on. Moving on. There we are. Okay. Let's talk about alcohol. What makes alcohol a problem as we counsel people? What properties make it troublesome? Let me admit to start that I do, I do have a conflict of interest. I don't drink. I was raised in a home that didn't drink. I, I don't drink alcohol by choice. And now, I don't believe that the Bible teaches total abstinence from ethanol, for those of you who are getting worried out there. I just, I just don't think it's smart. I, I don't stand in judgment of, of those who drink, and I, I don't think Jesus made grape juice at the wedding of Cana, because I, I read Greek. And so with that in mind, but at the same time, I don't mind tweaking all of you who like a little wine just a bit. I, you know, then, anyway. So what what would I say about alcohol? Why does it make things difficult? Well, first off, alcohol is poison, period, zero. There there is no other way to describe it. It is toxic in all of its forms to humans and plants and animals. It will always be that way. It causes damage to the liver, heart, brain, stomach, pancreas. One ounce a day of alcohol increases your risk of all kinds of cancers from your lips to the exit. For, For women, it increases their risk. One ounce of alcohol a day increases your risk of breast cancer, period. Two ounces of alcohol a day will put you at greater risk for hypertension and heart disease, cardiomyopathy. The research that says it might be great for you to drink a glass of red wine a day because it will protect your heart from from, coronary artery disease really is a matter of what day did you read it because it it goes back and forth. I think the truth of the matter is it isn't the ethanol, it it is the grape juice. You know, if you drank Welch's grape juice, you'd probably get just as much good out of it for for your ticker. So now, the important thing to remember came off that uh, slide which showed you where all the receptors were. And the reason why it is so, the reason why alcohol is the number one substance abuse in the United States and the reason why it presents great difficulty in counseling is because it affects all. Every last one of those receptors in the, the reward pleasure pathway. It also explains why people uh, develop uh, tolerance to it and develop a habit quickly. The, it, it, another problem is, is that it's socially acceptable and it's easily obtained. You don't have to break the law to get it or use it. As well, the majority of churches in the United States, while they used to oppose the sale and manufacture of alcohol, that is not true anymore. I can remember reading uh, that, and I, and I used to go to a Methodist church when I was a kid, but it, you know, in the Methodist discipline initially, uh, you know, if you were a Methodist in John Wesley's time, if you were going to drink alcohol, you had to get a, a note of permission from your physician saying that you needed to drink it. And the reason why was because alcohol at that time was killing as many people or more than what than opiates are killing here in the United States today. Now, um, so, anybody here like the Babylon Bee? Oh, yes. My brother says it's Mad Magazine for Preachers. <laughs> And I can remember reading one, one of those Babylon Bee things that was making fun. And I had, you know, I find that I have to put in its sarcasm whenever I repost the Babylon Bee because people will read them and take them seriously. Like, the, like the one I posted the other day that said a Baptist theologian discovered that the unpardonable sin was dancing. <laughs> there, there were people who were taking it seriously. 
<laughs> anyway, I, I can remember reading one that I thought was kind of amusing, and, and, and they were making fun of craft beer evangelism. Anyway, oh, yes, anyway. <laughs> Tolerance develops quickly and withdrawal symptoms even quicker. Think hangover. Uh, and that amusing phrase, I need a hair of the dog that bit me. Uh, th- what that means is it doesn't take long to become dependent with regular use, and, and withdrawal shows up early. I can remember seeing a truck driver once who came in wanted his CDL physical renewed, and when I got to the part about alcohol, he told me uh, when his day's work over, he would drink 12 to 18 beers every evening, which loosely translated mean his blood alcohol level never got below the legal limit to drive. But he was functioning. I mean, it looked like he was functioning. He had developed significant tolerance, which is also a significant problem when it comes to counseling these individuals. Uh, I believe that, truly that there is a hered- hereditary issue to it, that some people are more predisposed to becoming addicted to it than others. That's why I don't drink. I, I've just got too many relatives who, are, who have been or who are, are uh, alcoholics or addicts to alcohol. Um, men are at greater risk because they have greater muscle mass than women. I've tried to figure out a, a delicate way to say adipose without offending half the crowd here, but because men have more muscle and women have more of the other tissue, you, you, <laughs> and because muscle has a higher water content than fat, the, um, a, a woman, uh, a man can drink more before he gets to the same blood alcohol level that a woman can drink. Uh, which is also an issue. It works on the GABA system as, an, as, a, as a reducer of anxiety, which is probably explains why there are so many bars and airports and why booze is popular on airplanes. <sighs> All right. Now, how does it affect biblical counseling? Well, the number of receptors in the area of the brain that are affected, I think that makes a significant, makes a significantly more difficult and a significantly greater threat for addiction. Tolerance, I think, is a big issue. Uh, I can do this, and it doesn't seem to affect me. Well, it, it doesn't se- you don't think it seems to affect you. Now, everybody else who is around you probably thinks differently. And then it becomes an idol. Feeling good becomes the idol of the heart. As, as I've often said, biblical counseling is goal-oriented. It is not problem-oriented. And, and, and until your goal becomes, I want to glorify God with my life more than I want to breathe, you are always going to have little idols popping up and around that you will worship and pursue. And that's what the issue is, I think, with alcohol for some. Okay, going on to cocaine. I guess I could, you have that in your notes anyway. All right, cocaine and amphetamines. Cocaine meets all the criteria for addiction except withdrawal, depending on whom you talk to. It uh, blocks, there just aren't real terrible withdrawal symptoms if you're a regular cocaine user or a regular amphetamine user. It blocks dopamine reuptake. Users describe an amazing sense of well-being and euphoria, and that's what keeps them coming back. Users develop a tolerance quickly, uh, to, to cocaine. Stopping it abruptly will often lead to depression, which is part of what drives them back to the cocaine. Amphetamines. Amphetamines have similar effects, but they operate by releasing dopamine, and amphetamines are, are highly addictive. The um, user feels better on the drugs. Euphoria, exhilaration, alertness, feelings of well-being and confidence. And as the drug level declines, the user crashes and the cravings are intense. 
I, I can tell you right now that we are in the middle of a, an opioid addiction crisis. The next crisis is going to be amphetamines. Um, the reason why the next crisis is going to be amphetamines is because they're currently being promoted by the medical profession. You know, we, we, write, we write amphetamines regularly for ADHD. Um, they are currently diverted in colleges to other students. Um, and over, and since, you can, since you could memorize the criteria for ADHD and go in and tell a doctor all of those criteria, it is not difficult to, not difficult to obtain them. Um, the, so... While, while some, uh, with some, there were, um, while there, while there is no particular withdrawal with cocaine, the euphoria associated with it is the significant drug problem that drives them back. And and the the really tricky issue is that with amphetamines, they can be legally obtained by almost anyone currently. What makes this a problem for biblical counseling? Well, the major problem is feeling-driven living. Um, I, you know, and the idol becomes feeling good. The depression that follows the euphoria drives the individual back to the substance. The goal in counseling individuals with this is, to, is, to, is for them to have a different goal. You know, instead of the goal of feeling good, the goal is to glorify God. That brings us to opioids, the most visible drug addiction problem in the, in the United States today. I say in the United States because it's not so much in the world. The reason why I say that is because our 4% of the population, you ever hear those, you know, in the, uh, pardon me, but the bleeding hearts, and I'm not trying to be political, but people who get up and, and want to tell you that our 4% of the population consume half the world's resources, and it's an awful thing, and we all ought to be poor and send our money overseas. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just trying to be funny here, and I'm obviously not making it. <laughs> but... What our four percent of the U.S. our four percent of the population consumes eighty-five percent of all the narcotics consumed in the world today. Period. And the question is: Is do we also have eighty-five percent of the pain? And the answer is: I don't think so. Then um, we actually consume almost all of the Vicodin made in the world. It, and the reason why is because it has become socially acceptable. You know, with that pain is the fifth vital sign, which that is passing away. I mean, physicians and uh, and uh, and the Center for Disease Control have finally upped to it. You know, now all we have to do is get the message out to all the guys who are still writing prescriptions. My company has has gone through in the last year and a half of uh, uh, working uh, to reduce the the actual amount of of um, narcotics by milligram that we write. You know, one of, one of my colleagues said, well, no, we just need to know how to do this right. And I said, no, you misunderstand entirely. We have to write less of this stuff. If, if, if we continue to write this medicine at this rate in this country, 60,000 people are going to die a year. And the only way it's going to change is if we quit writing so much of it. And, and, our, and my company has been working at that, reducing the amount. Uh, another thing that has contributed to it is scientific ignorance. Uh, interesting historical note is that heroin in 1898 was introduced by the Bayer Drug Company, who brought you, brings you Bayer aspirin and other things, as a non-addictive substitute for morphine. Yeah, that's, that's, that's where we got heroin. Oxycontin, when it was first introduced, was sold to physicians as a, a, as a substance which could be used that had very low potential for addiction. 
My goodness, were they ever wrong. Entirely wrong. Purdue Pharma brought that to us. The um, problem, the reason why opiates are so addicting is because we have brain receptors that like that stuff. Um, and euphoria becomes the driver. We make our own endorphins, and, and it, you know, if, you can, if you can take a Vicodin, you get more of it. I, you know, um, I'm in, not to be too descriptive, but I I'm, come from a family that, uh, we, in, unless we get colonoscopies regularly, we die of colon cancer. And up until this year, the substance with, that they would sedate me with was Demerol. And uh, now they use propofol, the Michael Jackson drug. They turn it on, you go to sleep, and you hope somebody turns it back off and you wake up, that would, which is why Jackson died. You know, there was nobody there to turn it back off. And, um, uh, but I can remember when I would get that 50 or 100 milligrams of Demerol and I would wake up and I really felt pretty good. You know, it's like, yikes, this is why I don't drink or it's why I don't take Vicodin. Um, euphoria, a sense of well-being that is out of place to your situation. Tolerance develops in days with, these, with the use of these drugs. Yes, tolerance develops with days dependence in as little as 14 days of regular use. That's just the way it is. Withdrawal symptoms are rarely fatal, but can be amazingly uncomfortable. Um, people who become um, confirmed uh, addicts, uh, it, it's going, it requires a considerable amount of care for them to get out of it. Now, what are the counseling challenges? Well, you know, the first counseling challenge is that the pain people have often is very real. You know, my knee bothers me some. It, it does. Uh, if I stand up here long enough, it'll probably bother me more. Um, the problem with opioids is that initially, while they uh, make you feel somewhat better about the pain, if you take enough of it, eventually it causes the pain. Yeah, it, it, and, and, and so as you drive to higher and higher doses, not having it becomes a matter of withdrawal, and the discomfort that you're having may be directly related to the pain medicine that you're taking instead of the, the orthopedic problem or whatever it is that you have. Then, if the goal is to be pain-free, you know, the problem then also becomes, with, from a counseling viewpoint, is that the goal is to be pain-free as opposed to glorifying God. Uh, you know, I don't know why people have gotten it into their heads that we're supposed to spend our whole lives and never be uncomfortable. I always, I always like what uh, C.S. Lewis said about Luke 9.23, you know, where it says, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself and, and, uh, t and daily take up his cross and follow me. And what Lewis said was, is, uh, you know, how did you miss the idea that, that if, if you become a Christian, there wasn't going to be suffering when he was talking about a cross? You know, if he tells you to pick up your cross, there is going to be suffering. So it is an unreasonable expectation of us to spend our whole lives and never, ever be uncomfortable. Then, the other reason why these medicines have been a problem has, has been because they have been legally and thoroughly promoted uh, up until about three years ago. But it's probably been about five or six years ago, but uh, Purdue Pharma got thrown out of, the, uh, out of doctor's offices all over across the country. And, and, and the reason why was because they, they were the ones who were promoting, uh, promoting the use of OxyContin uh, for things that it didn't need to be used for. So those are the challenges. Now we come to my favorite drug. Not really, I don't use it. That was what a patient of mine called, called it, wacky tobacky. <laughs> yeah, because it leaves you wacky. Uh, it is addicting. It is intoxicating, period. It is intoxicating. And what was it? Do not be drunk. 
Yes, and, and, and the truth of the matter is the only reason why people smoke marijuana is to be intoxicated. Some people will smoke it and say they smoke it for medical indications, and I would tell you that there are very narrow medical indications for the use of the CBD portion of the cannabinoids, and mostly the only ones that I see that are real are refractory seizures, refractory seizures in children. Um, all the rest of it that you see on the internet is folklore. <laughs> and, and I am an advocate for real research in marijuana use. I really am because it, it would, you know, it, right now it, people are saying it cures cancer, it does this, it does that, it does all kinds of things. Uh, without a, a double-blind controlled study amongst them to show that it does. It's all, it's all uh, anecdotal, anecdotal bull manure. Anyway, uh, I didn't say what I was thinking. Um, I restrained myself. Um, so it's addicting. It has its own set of um, it has its own set of neuroreceptors, that much like the opioids, and we make our own cannabinoids. It calms people from anxiety. It enhances their appetite. There are a hundred times as many cannabinoid receptors in your head as there are opiate receptors. That is probably why it is such of a problem. Uh, it gives us a false sense of creativity. People think they're actually smarter or better at things than they really are. It's the old hack about, you know, the, when you're drunk, people aren't laughing with you, they're laughing at you. Um, it causes short-term memory impairment, and it, if you use it long enough, your IQ declines. People become less intelligent over time as they use marijuana. Tolerance develops in a matter of days. Uh, it produces cravings in about 9% of the users. The real problem that I see, or big one, is the fact that there's an increase of manic mania, bipolar disorder one, and schizophrenia in people who smoke marijuana, and it actually changes brain structure, period. Actually changes brain structure. Um, uh, problems in counseling is that it's becoming socially acceptable and the, um, and the number of cannabinoid receptors in a person's brain. Um, it is indeed being hooked on a feeling, very feeling-oriented, and uh, the writer of Hebrews tells us that there are pleasures in sin for a season. You know, that's the challenge. Hurrying on because I am out of time. Um, the, the anxiety drugs, the Xanax and the Clonopins work on the GABA receptors a lot like alcohol. Um, if you become a committed user of those drugs, the withdrawal is, is difficult. Uh, you know, I, I'd say it's as difficult as quitting nicotine. <sighs> then, caffeine, back to my favorite drug. Why did I quit caffeine? Why? Well, because the Bible tells me that my body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which you have of God, and you are not your own. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. The main problem with addiction is and always will be that it is a worship issue, and we get to choose who we want to glorify. God bless you as you seek to help people who struggle with it. Copyright 2017, IBCD, all rights reserved. More free resources are available at www.ibcd.org.